If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to Exodus chapter 25. I had uh, the privilege of uh, the summer after my 21st year to go to Washington, D.C. And, I mean, the week uh, was very humbling at a lot of levels. Going into Arlington Cemetery, uh, went to the Washington Holocaust Museum. But for me, more than any other place, it was walking up the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and seeing this larger-than-life statue of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, on the adjacent, on the side walls, you can read the Gettysburg Address and his second inaugural speech. Uh, and it, it is, in some ways, a holy place, sacred space, that at least for me, when I walked out my young 21-year-old self, I wanted to be a better American. I don't think anyone needs to make this argument in the last several weeks, but monuments matter. <laughs> monuments communicate things, sometimes good things, sometimes not good things. But as I've reflected on just my own soul, and I think having talked to many of you, there's, there's, a, there's a tiredness among, our, among Christians. There's tiredness among people in the church. There's tiredness among people just in our, in our communities. Uh, tired, of not, <laughs> tired of crazy weather, tired of illness, protests. And I would say that the temptation then when you're tired, when you're confused, when you're overwhelmed is to check out. And one of the, my deepest prayers for us as a church family, as those who do represent Christ, is that we would see Christ and we'd walk out wanting to serve him more faithfully. If seeing Abraham Lincoln in a, reading speeches can make a young man want to be a better American, I would pray that if we see Christ, his glory, his beauty, his strength, his mercy, his grace, we would then turn and we would walk out and we would say, I'm going to labor. Again, I feel like over this season, my, my ministry muscles are a little atrophied. Do you feel that? Like we canceled a bunch of programs. Some of you who just labor long and hard with children's ministry haven't been doing that. And the temptation when you kind of don't use your muscles, ministry muscles, is you just kind of want to like, can we maybe not do that anymore? And yet I guess I would just even, even as, as I pray as a pastor for this fall, that we would realize what a privilege it is to serve God's kingdom. We're all, we're all going to be tempted toward comfort, but the call is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And what we're, what we're, where we are in the story of God's people, the Israelites, being brought out of Egypt, entering into a covenant relationship with God is... They are, they are before God on Mount Sinai. God is uniquely present there, seen in this cloud and thunder and God speaking. But he has asked them to go onward, not to stay there, not to stay at the mountain, but to go onward. He has a plan and a purpose for the people of God. And what's beautiful is what God is promising here in this section of Exodus is he says, I'm going to go with you. 
What you're experiencing here at Mount Sinai, Israel, God's presence, God's leadership, God's voice, we're going to figure out a way, and here it is, for God to move with you. Let me just read to you how chapter 25 opens up. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. And these are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for, for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. Listen to verses 8 and 9. He says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly like the the pattern I will show you. So God has this pattern to build this sanctuary so that he can dwell with him. So a monument that God has in mind is going to come down, and it turns out it's going to be a traveling monument. It's going to be a tent, a traveling tent, also known as a tabernacle. Later in the Israelite history, they will build a, something similar in the form of a temple. And I want to look at some of the descriptions of this temple, the, com- the commands related to this temple and tabernacle, excuse me, and answer two questions. Because right now when you start talking about ancient tabernacles from the Old Testament, it's always tempting to be like, this is a weird discussion. I mean, if you've been in the church long enough, you're like, well, there must be something important here. But if you're not walking with Jesus, you're new to Christianity, you're like, a sacred tent? What is that? So two questions. Well, I want to I ask and answer throughout it is, what did, what, what did the ancient Israelites, the original recipients of this tent, this tabernacle, uh, what did they think? What did they understand? But now on this side of the, the ministry of Jesus Christ, what should we think of this tabernacle? So again, verse 8 and 9 are key. He says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So two key phrases for us to investigate. This term, this expression, a sanctuary for me where I will dwell, and then exactly like the pattern I will show you. Or we could summarize it, God's sanctuary and God's pattern. So when I throw out the word sanctuary, what comes to your mind? What's a sanctuary? If you're more of a naturalist, you might think of like a bird sanctuary, place where the birds won't get shot at by 12-year-old boys in a shotgun. I mean, I'd say most of us, when we hear the term sanctuary, we, we think of these special rooms inside buildings that churches own. There's this whole building. You often have something called a fellowship hall, and you might have Sunday school rooms and a kitchen. And then there's the sanctuary. Uh, or if you're really crafty and cool now, you don't use religious words, so you just call it like the worship room or but you kind of know that it's okay to play dodgeball in the fellowship hall, but it's not okay to play dodgeball in the sanctuary. Now, but the, interesting, the, the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word for sanctuary, throughout the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, on almost every, every example except for a few, it always refers 
to this holy and sacred place where God dwelt. The one true God would uniquely dwell in one unique place. There was a single sanctuary because there was only one God. And God's sanctuary wasn't just some, some edifice. It wasn't just a room. The reason why it was special and holy and sacred is because God was there, in, in a sense, more so than other places, which sometimes gets into your brain. Like, what does that mean? God is everywhere. I learned that fancy you know, biblical word, omnipresence. You know, that's in my th- systematic theology. He's everywhere. And yet God says this. Yeah, God is everywhere. Psalm 139, you can't get away from him, it says. But there are times and places where God will uniquely present himself and make himself known. If you look a few chapters later in Exodus, chapter 29, verses 42 and 43, you can read this. Exodus 29, verse 42 and 43 says, For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of meeting, before the Lord, and there I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So God's, so God's glory is his, uh, it's the, the, the manifestations of his, of his excellence. And he's saying that uniquely in this place, I'm going to speak to you, I'm going to draw near to you. Now, in a bit, we're going to look at the sanctuary's description, and it's obviously very important. But just immediately, if you read through the rest of the New, excuse me, the rest of the Old Testament, let's ask the question: What did the old, what did the ancient Israelites think about this tabernacle, which is later uh, turned into the the temple under Solomon? I think two words would summarize how most Jews felt around this tabernacle: delight and dread. Delight and dread. Delight in the sense of the privilege that they, God's people, have God with them. Dread, meaning a sense of awe, weightiness, that the holy, heavenly, and majestic God said, I'm coming close. I don't think it's altogether that different than the first time a five-year-old shows up for kindergarten in an elementary school building. There's delight. They get to go to big school. They're there. But once they get there, they look around and they say, this is big. Adults, have you had the privilege of going back to the elementary school you went to as a kid? And you're like, man, everything's so small. (laughs) Because in your brain, like you're in this like gothic cathedral, you know, with that intimidating person, the principal. You know, then you meet the principal 20 years later, like, wow, that is like the nicest person I have ever met. If if you've ever been, I don't know if you guys have traveled much and gone to a major Catholic cathedral, there is a sense of both delight and dread. There's a beauty and a majesty to these facilities, but there's also just an ominous presence to be in something so large and so beautiful. The Jews understood that as God traveled with them later in this tabernacle, that they were a uniquely privileged people to have God with them. And yet, 
this wasn't a privilege that could be manhandled any way they liked. There's actually an example later in the Old Testament where they were traveling and carrying one of the pieces that were a part of this tabernacle. And it was supposed to be carried in such a way, and they didn't carry it in that way. And the, the Ark of the Covenant starts falling, and the man reaches out, goodness of his heart, don't let it fall! And God kills him. Because God is holy, and he had made commands on how he should be approached. Delight and dread. But what about us today? What, what should we think of this tent, this tabernacle? Well, first we need to realize, and this is worth meditating on, is the tabernacle, later it's replacing the temple, it's actually been torn down. Like God this is in the ministry of Jesus Christ, he foretold this place, this place where God has uniquely been present, will experience my judgment. And that's exactly what happened. Because God's people had rejected him, sinned against him, dishonored him. Also for Christians, we have one of the greatest news ever before is that God actually came even nearer in the person of Jesus Christ. So you're familiar with John 1.14, talking about Jesus. It says, the word of God, Jesus, became flesh. And it says he dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is a Greek word that could be translated. He tabernacled among us. He set up tent with us. So when Jesus was walking in Jerusalem and in Galilee, he was, God was uniquely present, revealing his glory and his majesty. And where Jesus went, there was delight, but there was also a sense of dread. He is the holy son of God. We read later in John chapter 1, verse 17 through 18, it says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relation with the Father, has made him known. We'll get to in a second that all of the, all of the ways in which the tabernacle was uh, built and decorated were to communicate things about God. But even more so, you would know God by watching Jesus. If you're trying to understand what Christians believe, I just encourage you to take out your Bible and turn about three quarters of the way in and read either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and just read about Jesus. This is God. You can see God in how Jesus loves and ministers and speaks and pronounces and judges. Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than the law, and greater than the, temp than the tabernacle. Jesus is God's sanctuary for God's people. God's sanctuary is to be holy, set apart for worship for him. How much so should our worship of Jesus be pure? For he is, he is pure and he died for our impurities, died for our sins. Um, I wonder, you know, as you think about meditating on Jesus, have you made Jesus the central point in person of your life? Again, I go to the Lincoln Memorial and I'm struck by what it means to be an American. Now, the invitation for us now is to look to Christ and, and be challenged and also encouraged, comforted and yet convicted because we see him. If you're tired, if you're worn out, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I want to give you rest. 
and he gives us rest for our souls, and then he sends us out on mission. In many ways, I hope that's what Sunday morning is like for us. Those of you who are walking with Jesus, and say, like we come, we rest in the Lord, we worship the Lord, we get restored, and then we go out and we labor six hard days to make Jesus known. We want to press on and be faithful to him. I want us to see a little bit more of Jesus as we actually look at the tabernacle. Back in 25 verse 9, it said this. It said, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now what's interesting is after this verse, there are five chapters where God gives instructions on how the tabernacle and the priests are to be arranged. Then later, starting in chapter 35, there's another five chapters. So first five chapters, here are the instructions. Next five chapters, and this is what the Israelites did to construct the tabernacle as God desired. And for the sake of time, I've chosen not to spend individual sermons on each of those items. I do encourage you to read and meditate on them. But I would like today to look at this at a 500-foot level. Uh, you can find lots of useful representations of the tabernacle online. Here's some on the, uh, the wall above me on the screen. Um, so try to get your mind around this. The, 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 the tabernacle is a large rectangular tent. That's what, and it's inside this courtyard. The tabernacle itself is about 15 foot high, 45 feet uh, in length, and 15 feet wide. The tent... In this courtyard, the whole courtyard is just 10,000 square feet. So this building, those of you who didn't know, it's only like, it's about 15,000 square feet. So the entire courtyard would have fit inside this building. And then the tabernacle even would have been, I think, smaller than this room. Am I right, Dave? Dave's good at measurements. <laughs> it's just, but... Uh, um, and, and, and then when you, within this tent, you have these key pieces of furniture. And uh, if you're looking at the picture above, it, it starts with the room that's curtained off inside the tent called the Holy of Holies. And inside there was the Ark of the Covenant, where they, inside the Ark of the Covenant would be the Ten Commandments and later a few other items. There would be these uh, golden angels, cherubim, that stood above the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, now, this holy place, in many ways, it kind of harkens back to what was lost in the Garden of Eden. So in the Garden of Eden was this place of holy relationship with God. It was perfect. But because of sin, they were cast out, and it was guarded by angels. So this holy place where God uniquely present, guarded by angels, that's why only one priest, one time a year, could enter there with blood to make things right. Now, outside of the Holy of Holies, you start moving on. There's some other furnishings. Let's just talk about them. There was a lampstand, a table, and an altar. Uh, chapter, five, chapter 25, verses 23 through 30, they give instructions for the table. The table held 12 loaves of bread for each tribe of Israel. Verse 30 says, Put the bread of the presence on the table to be before me at all times. And most scholars believe this, this is God inviting Israel, these 12 tribes, have a seat at my table. You are here. 
You are welcome here. From the table, uh, across from the table, you would see this gigantic lampstand like a menorah. Uh, Interesting, the Bible never tells us exactly uh, how big it is, other than we know it weighed 75 pounds. And there they would constantly keep it lit. Uh, Later, when you read about the thickness of these curtains and stuff, it was really dark in there. (laughs) So this is the only place where they had light, was from this gigantic menorah. And the seven branches probably symbolizes perfection, uh, that God is the light of the world, that God is ever present with us by his Spirit. And again, at the end of the instructions related to the lamps, we read in verse 40 of chapter 25, see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. It's not till chapter 30 where you read about this altar of incense where they would send up incense before God, a priest would every single day, and the incense uh, throughout Scripture symbolizes God's people praying. So these priests who represented the people were lifting up the people's prayers to God. And then you, then you start moving outside the tent. What's outside the tent? You walk outside the tent, there's a place for the washing of hands in this basin. But the main centerpiece inside the courtyard was this uh, 50-square-foot altar that was always supposed to be kept burning because there would always be a need of a sacrifice. Constantly, all throughout the day, every day of the year, people were bringing sacrifices for their sins. Later in the New Testament, it talks about Jesus, after he had finished his sacrificial work, he sat down. No more sacrifice for sins. Everything was complete. One of the notable furnishings missing inside the courtyard in the tabernacle, no chairs. Why? Because the priests always had to keep bringing sacrifices. They never sat down and said, oh, good, Everybody's taken care of now. Over and over, every single day. And as I mentioned, at the end of chapter 39, we read that the people built exactly what God wanted. Chapter 39, verse 42, it says, The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded, and so Moses bless them. So we have God's sanctuary made according to God's pattern. But people might ask the question, why does it need to be so precise? Why was God so clear about the pattern? Well, again, from the Israelites' perspectives, as Christians, we're going to get some secret information in in the Hebrews, but if you're just an Israelite, why is God doing it this way? Well, certainly they knew that how they responded to the precise commandments from God would reveal the condition of their hearts. Do we want this God to dwell with us? Do we want this God to go with us? And responding to the God's pattern would say, yes, Lord, we want you to travel with us. We want you to go with us. Likewise, they would know that they could not approach God any way that they liked. It's not any religion will do. In fact, it's not until the book of Leviticus where the ministry finally starts. And very early in the ministry, Aaron's two sons violate God's tabernacle and they die. 
because they wanted to worship however they liked. These Israelites would know that to approach God, there was only one entrance into the courtyard, there was only one altar, there was only one uh, opening into the tent, there's only one opening into the Holy of Holies, and only one priest, one time a year, could bring that sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. It was a narrow way for certain, but praise God, there was a way. And Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, to tell the nations, there's a way. And praise God, there's examples in Scripture of people hearing about this God who came. Ruth the Moabite, she came. Naaman the Aramite, he came. There were people that heard about this one God, and they came and they met the one true God. It was a narrow way, but there was a way. What about us? What about Christians on the backside of Jesus? Well, we know that the precise details weren't just arbitrary, for we read later in the New Testament that the earthly sanctuary actually pointed to the reality of there being a heavenly sanctuary. And the reason why the pattern is so precise is because it's pattern on how God deals with the world from where he rules from heaven. If you have a Bible, turn into the New Testament book of Hebrews. If you're ever having a tough time understanding the Old Testament, uh, it's been said that people love to get excited reading through the Bible, and they get through Genesis, and then the Bible's still good. They get through Exodus, it's still somewhat exciting. And then they get to Leviticus, and they get this disease called Leviticitis. And all of a sudden, reading the Bible isn't interesting anymore. If you're doing that, I just encourage you, pause and just go spend a week or two in Hebrews. And it begins to tell you, like, these details, this, these patterns, they pointed forward to Jesus. And they're important, and they shouldn't be lost. But before you get Leviticus, maybe meditate in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 5 and 6 read this way. It says, they, speaking of priests, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Hebrews 8, 5, verse 6. It says, in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. So the blueprint here on earth be, came because there's a heavenly reality that needed to, that this, this plane down here, this earthly plane, the plane that we live on, if we're going to understand who God is, we need to realize this is what it looks like because it looks like something similar up here. Um, that's a little confusing. Let me just read to you more of the Bible. Hebrews 9, verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11, it says this. It says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. The true tabernacle wasn't made by human hands. It's God's dwelling. It's God's sanctuary. You jump down to verse 23 in chapter 9, and it continues by saying this. 
It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Anything that could be true on earth it's perfectly represented in heaven. And it's always important to remember that earth and heaven are, are like interconnected uh, places that overlap with each other. This is probably why we pray something like, Lord, let, would you make earth like heaven, where you rule and you reign, it's perfect. Would you make that true down here? But what it's saying then is when Jesus dies in Jerusalem in the first century, he is simultaneously offering himself to God in his sanctuary, on his altar, to make us right with God. And as it said, unlike priests who have to do it over and over and over and over and over again, one time for all people. And in so doing, what does Christ do? He opens, he opens wide that relationship into, with God again to know him uniquely and powerfully. In, in many ways, it's like a return into Eden. The, 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 there's the judgment that was under those who sinned against God. It's, it's over, and you can return once again and be with God. There's all these movie titles and stories about In Search of Eden, In Search of Eden. And the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ says the way you return to paradise is you have to be right with God. And that's, I think, that one of the things that we all know in our own hearts, whether you walk with Jesus for a long time or if you're still searching for God, you're all looking for joy. You're all looking for peace. You're all looking for happiness. We're all looking at, for some level, we're looking for Eden. But what Jesus comes is he comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. I'm the only one back to, the way back to Eden. Because Eden isn't, you know, a Ferrari and money. and Eden is walking with God in the cool of the day forever. How did Jesus accomplish it? Just think about this. Jesus was God's perfect monument. We read in Scripture that he was the image of the invisible God. But Jesus allowed himself to be torn down. Jesus said, destroy this body, destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. His body was torn down. The perfect image of God decimated and destroyed because people didn't want Jesus. This is not for me. We don't want him. And yet he willingly laid down his life for the very people 
who wanted him to die. And three days later, he resurrected from the dead, triumphing over sin and death and hell. And he goes to all the people who sinned against him, all the people who wanted him dead, and he says, come again. Come to me, all you weary and heavy laden. Come to me who have sinned against me. Come to me who have run from me. I'll give you rest for your souls. And one day, those who have trusted in Christ will receive the last blessing, which is a new heaven and a new earth, where God is uniquely present with his people, where all the sin is gone and everything is made right. So I want to close with this great promise in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, some of us feel this uh, old order of things more acutely than others. Uh, We still feel this world is broken, this world is marred. There is suffering and anger and division. Um, We're tired, and and we're praying, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. But I do pray that until you come, I pray that we would be faithful. Would you strengthen the inner person? Would you come to these weak, fallible hands and feet And would you strengthen your people? We want to see Jesus. We want to be transformed by Jesus. We want to be sent out on a mission for Jesus. I pray that anyone who hasn't come to believe in Jesus, who was torn down for them, that they would trust the one who died for them and now lives for them. Pray for those who do trust Jesus, that today they would be renewed. That just just glancing at the tabernacle and seeing God's heart to be with his people and all the sacrifice that was required for him to be with his people, we would see God's great love for his people even most manifested now in Jesus Christ. And that love would change us, transform us. Pour down your love by your Holy Spirit into our hearts, we pray. Amen. Amen.